All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello everyone, I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from my studio at the Center for Photography Woodstock in Kingston. Thank you, CPW. Really continue to love being here. I love coming in and seeing friendly faces. I love my space. I love leaving and seeing more friendly faces. It's just, yeah, feels like home. So thank you. And uh, let me just mention that CPW has a wonderful exhibition up right now. It's called Levy Photographs by Adriana Alt. And uh, that's up through March 17th. So if anyone's in the Catskill area, please head over to CPW and um, check out Addie's show. Addie is a great photographer and really happy for her that she has this this wonderful exhibition up at this wonderful space. So how are you? Oh, oh, wait, I didn't, um, hey. wait, hold on. <laughs> hey, oh my God, what in God's sure. name is happening? Well, you know what? CPW oh. should come before me. No, this, <laughs> the world has gone mad. I've gone mad. It's all upside down. This is a fire, this is a fireable offense. I think. T- take it to HR. Um, wait, hold on. Right. We have an ju- HR. <laughs> I'm ju- uh, yeah, call Taylor. Um. <laughs> Who you've been WhatsApp WhatsApping with nonstop since early it's this morning, true. and I just told you to cut it out because it was driving me insane. Um, so. Our WhatsApp thread can just explode at, at any time. It does. Everyone, I'm joined as usual by the wonderful and comparable Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. That's my guy. There he is. Hi, Michael. <laughs> Hi. Hey, you know what? While we, while we are uh, thanking our supporters, let's thank our main sponsor, Picture House in the Small Darkroom, who have sent me a lovely list of events coming up, and they have quite a few, so... Uh, take notes. <laughs> or, I'm ready. Or do this at half speed. On uh, Tuesday, February 6th, Clint Woodside of Deadbeat Press will be oh, in Clint. conversation. Clint, yes, with Maud Arsenault and her new book, Entangled. Uh, and then on February 17th, uh, they'll be joined by Brooklyn based photographer Sharon Mukherjee. On March 5th, Jay Carrier will be talking about his forthcoming book, Mirage, published by TIS. TIS. And, uh, Love those guys. Yeah. On April 9th, Ian Lewandowski will be giving a talk in conjunction with his solo show at Clamp Gallery. Uh, and then finally, Tim Carpenter, one of our favorites, will be in the studio on April 24th to discuss his new book, Little, published by Ice Plant. So that's a lot. Of course, you can just uh, check that out at phtsdr.com for Picture House, the small darkroom.com or their Instagram with the same handle, phtsdr. So uh, give them a look. Sorry, the first one, Clint, when, when is that? Yeah, February 6th. Yep, February 6th, February Clint Woodside. February 6th. I'm going to be in the city. I, maybe I could make it over there. Oh. Yeah, I love oh, Clint. Would, would love, would love yep. to say hi to him, and I'd love to hear Maud talk. So... 
Wow, that, yeah. could, that could be fun. Well, so, uh, okay. Come to that one. Maybe you'll see both of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So uh, thank you, Picture House, The Small Dark Room. We love you. Yeah, we do. And yes, thank you so much for your continued support. And Michael, this was a great episode, if I do say so myself. So tell folks a little this bit about today's show. This is a tour de force of important conversation about photography and portraiture and representation and sort of where you are in your kind of creative and artistic life. Uh, this is this is impossible for me to summarize any more than that. You really have to listen to this one. I, I called it sort of four chapters of, you know, chapters one and two about the artist, chapters three about the books, and chapter four about kind of how you stay in love with photography. And it's it's so much, and it's so good. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's really good. So our guests were Carla Williams. Oh, yeah, and our uh, guests are. <laughs> <laughs> Every, I love it when I have to clean up Michael Chauvin Dalton, because Michael Chauvin Dalton is always cleaning up my messes. So, yes. oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So Carla Williams and Carolyn Drake were our guests, and they both have books that came out last year in 2023 with uh, TBW. In fact, let me just clarify something. At one point, Carla talks about the two Pauls, and I just want to clarify mm -hmm. who the two Pauls are. One is Paul Sapoya, the great photographer artist, and the other is Paul Sheik, who is the founder and head publisher of TBW Books. Um, both Carolyn and, and Carla's books are with TBW. And, you know, I, I do suggest looking online if you don't have these books before you listen to the episodes. Definitely not necessary, but definitely helpful. Anyway, yeah, incredible conversations is one of those shows just personally for me, where I actually had to wrap it up because um, mm -hmm. we, had, we had some technical issues in the beginning. And so we didn't start on time. And I had another appointment and I was so disappointed because I really, really wanted to keep talking with them. I mean, I think the audience probably intuits this or just it's clear maybe that I'm really loving talking to my guests. I'm, I'm I, you know, I, yes, I, I, think so. I, I feel <laughs> if, if you, the listeners sense my deep um, engagement, yeah, that's correct. That's how I feel. And I'm just having a conversation with people who I'm, I really, really want to talk to. And I'm also learning from. And so, you know, I, I sense it. Honestly, I really sense it when you're sort of just sitting back and listening. Yeah. When, we, mm -hmm. when they're, you know, we've only had a, a couple of episodes with two guests and, and you can tell that when the conversation is, is really getting intense, you kind of just, you sit back and listen and, and the two guests talk to each other. And I love that. I yeah. Love that part me of the too. Show. I mean, I yeah. said to them before we started recording, that I'd be happy if I wasn't talking. You know, for <laughs> me as a person who loves this medium and is really fascinated mm -hmm. by the creative process, I'm really happy just to listen, you know. So yeah. anyway, it's a very full and, and moving, both moving and also informative. It's just filled with information, I think, this... this. So, you know, Carla Williams' book is Tender. Carolyn Drake's book is Men Untitled. They're both books about portraiture and so in case maybe you're wondering why we had the two of them on together that's a little that's bit of a why. connection yep. yeah all right well now that we've um sort of in many circuitous and and roundabout ways yes, we, um we, we kind of came the... like through the back door a little bit <laughs> we did we did 
<laughs> well, now you know, listeners, that we do not have notes in front of us. If you were, <laughs> Sorry. Very if you were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Michael and I are just so filled with confidence that we just... Let's just wing it, baby. Let's just wing it. That's right. Um, all right. Well, Michael, now that we've once again recorded a long intro, and <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing we said before we started. Let's make yes, sure the intro is really short. <laughs> Lack of discipline. Um, yes. Where's HR? <laughs> Call tower. Um, All right, Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Carla Williams and Carolyn Drake. Carla Williams, Carolyn Drake, welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast. It is great to have you both on, and this is our first ever, we did one podcast where we had two guests on who were discussing the same project for the most part, but this is our first time having two people on discussing two different projects, but I, I promise the listeners that there is a reason it will all come into focus soon enough. But Carla, let's start with you. First of all, I'm so, so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you. You're going to tell everyone about this project and particularly the new book, Tender, but I will just say I've just loved spending time with it so much. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And I'll I'll gush over it <laughs> in, a, in a little bit for sure in a little while. But let's get started as we always do. If you could just tell us about yourself and your your journey. Sure. I started photography in college and quickly fell in love with it and ended up majoring in photography. That was 37 years ago, I think. <laughs> and uh so, and I you know, I had a it was a very traditional kind of photo history applied photography department that I came out of. So I went straight to grad school to a very similar program in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And out of grad school, I kind of, I I sort of pursued photography. I didn't really in any serious way. I didn't really have a sense of, of how I would do that. So I just didn't. But I worked in the arts in peripheral roles. I think I've had every job in the arts over the course of my (laughs) 35 professional years and really stopped photographing entirely around 2009. Ironically, it was when I was about to start my first teaching job. And I uh, taught for five years and then moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, where I stopped really being affiliated with photography altogether. And it wasn't until COVID when Paul Sheik reached out to me that I even resumed having conversations about my photographic work. It was really something that I had, I guess you could say, retired from, but certainly put in my past. So it's been a kind of a crazy journey these past few years, having to revisit these uh, decades old ideas and images. But it's, it's also been really quite fun and rewarding to see them all out of the boxes finally. You went quickly there over your undergrad 
and grad, but but your undergrad was Princeton, and I believe you had some pretty good professors there, including uh, Emmett Gowan. Is, yes. Is, do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I had wonderful professors at Princeton. Emmett Gowan and Susan Jehoda were the two studio photography instructors with whom I worked when I was there. And then Peter Bunnell was the photo historian who was there at the time. So yeah, it was an amazing experience and introduction to the medium, the history of the medium. I couldn't, I couldn't have asked for better. It was the best time. And it was a very tiny program. It was within the art and archaeology department, the visual arts major, and I ended up being the only photo major my year. So it was, it was extremely small. There were a lot of students who took photography courses, but very few of us who actually majored in it. So, but it was a unique time when I was there in the mid 80s and early to mid 80s. And most of us who were very active in it have remained friends are in contact over the last decade. So it was a, it was really special. And most of us would probably easily credit Emmett with uh, being the reason why he's an amazing person. And so you're, you know, with me today and, and with with Carolyn, because you, you created this work that's now been compiled into this wonderful book called Tender that you published with uh, TBW. And you had a show at Higher Pictures in New York City that was, I believe, a, a recreation of your thesis show. Yes. And it's interesting. So obviously, you want to talk a lot about the work itself. But just to put things in context, mm-hmm. as you said, you sort of didn't really... I do want to just say one thing. You, I think in 2002, you published a book called The Black Female Body of Photographic History that you did with the wonderful Deb Willis. So, you know, you've done (laughs) some, (laughs) you know, you've contributed some really extraordinary and important work to the photography community. And, but yes, as a photographer yourself, you didn't get a lot of support and encouragement and sort of seem to have put that aside then you rediscover your own work from 84 to 91, self-portraits that you made. Just to be clear, these are all self-portraits. There are 80 images in the book. Yes. And sometimes I think that books, I'm a photo book. That's how I like to look at work. I, I way more than going to exhibitions oh, totally. I'm a photo book person. And um and often I think that there's too many images in a book. I don't feel that way at all about your book. Oh, it thank is you. <laughs> unbelievable to look at a book of eighty self portraits and have all of them offer something different, which is just amazing. Thank you. Someone referred to your work as like a diary. And I think in some ways it is a, a diary in the way that you know, sure, a diary can be repetitive or whatever, especially when we're young and moody and yes, still sort of, of adolescent in our, <laughs> but, but it doesn't feel that way with, with it, it feels so mature. And I think one of the reasons it does is because there's such a sophisticated interplay between these self-portraits, many of which are nudes, many of which are not, but there's such an interplay between them and how personal they are to you and how diaristic they are, but yet how much they also, many of them reference 
other photographers and particularly certain styles within sort of the photographic history or certain prominent artists, whether it's Cindy Sherman or Edward Weston or, or Man Ray. Or, and so there's something so personal and also so reverential. I mean, it's just <laughs> like, there's just so much going on. I mean, anyway, but so tell folks about, because I don't even know the full story of how this came back into the world and took the world by storm. I think it just won best first photo book at Perry Photo and Yes. Congratulations. So, so, yeah. So tell folks really about how this incredible treasure trove of work reappeared. And then I I do want to get into the, what is the work and what you were thinking about while you were making it. Sure. Well, yeah. How, how it all became really unearthed and got out into the world was really the most random way and serendipity, really. I had a small shop here in New Orleans called Material Life. And one of the things I sold was vintage photographs. And it was a the primary focus of the shop was um, artist editions, vintage items, anything that black artists make that were on the affordable end of the spectrum. So for example, Micheline Thomas is a really good example, because she's made a lot of objects like a little compact mirror or a puzzle or things that could, Mm -hmm. you know, operate in a very different marketplace from obviously her fine art originals. And so, Mm -hmm. and I had a customer who bought a lot of vintage photographs from me. And I didn't, it took me the longest time really to make the connection. Out of the blue, maybe four or five months into COVID, the COVID shut down and which shut down my store, I got a phone call out of the blue from Paul Sheik. And he had been given my name by Paul Sapoya, who was my customer, who told him about my work. And for the longest, I couldn't figure out how Paul had learned about my work, because I had only just scanned all of the work when COVID hit, and I was sitting at home with nothing to do. So I scanned it all, created a website, but it seemed really unlikely. I'd never met Paul or spoken with Paul Sapoya. So it was kind of a mystery to me how he had seen the work enough to tell Paul Sheik about it. And as it turns out, and I absolutely don't remember this, apparently, at some point, I published three of them on my store's Instagram. No recollection of it. Cannot. So could not tell you which images they were. (laughs) He cannot remember which images they were. But apparently, they were impactful enough to cause him to sort of spread the word. And on that, isn't that amazing? And then on the strength of that, Paul called me and then it was it was off kind of to the races. Like it was, so it was just the most unlikeliest of scenarios. But, you know, when someone calls you to say, do you think you might want to make a photo book? Like the first thing you say is, yeah, because who doesn't? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, it's not a call that happens every day, certainly. And who doesn't no. love photo books? I mean, like you, I fell in love with photography largely through photo books. I worked in the art library And at the time, my job was photocopier because uh, students weren't allowed to handle the books themselves on the copy machine. But the copier was right next to where the photo books were housed. And so I spent countless hours just pulling every book off the shelf and going through it. So for the longest time, that was my primary experience of 
the history. I didn't, you know, museums and that kind of thing, they were an occasional visit, but books were the thing. Plus, you can put them on your lap. You can, I mean, they're just, they're so superior in so many ways for that experience. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So yeah, when, when Paul said that, it was, there was no way I was going to hesitate, even though it seemed the most unlikeliest thing in the world in 2020. I just never anticipated ever getting a call like that. The two Pauls. The have, two Pauls, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My patron yeah, Saint Pauls, really yeah. It's totally amazing. So I want to um, just read to you something that Zach Ritter wrote in American Suburb X about your, about your work. Even when Williams performs for the camera with an exaggerated smile or affected pose, there still remains a degree of sincerity, even of interiority, that reminds us we are looking at one person rather than a cipher for many. And though we may be aware that a performance is often taking place, we also, I think, see that a kind of introspection is being carried out as well, that she is exposing or discovering new layers of herself as much as she is riffing on or caricaturing, say, the poses and expressions of women that she would see in fashion photography or in her father's stash of pornography magazines that she and her sisters stumbled upon as teenagers. For as much as she came to understand self-portraiture as a whole philosophy, really, about the relationship between the camera subject and photographer, she also thought of the camera as a confidant, as something she could divulge secrets, musings, half-thoughts, and suppositions to. More than just technical apparatus, then, the 4x5-inch and Polaroid cameras that Williams used most functioned almost like a diary, something into which she could deposit herself freely and with little hesitation. Well, I really love that description. Oh, I think it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah. fabulous. And the, the part I really love is the beginning part, and he was talking about ways in which Cindy Sherman had, you know, her work and that influence makes its way into some of your pictures. So absolutely. But so that's, that's sort of the beginning that I didn't read. But that's when he says, even when Williams performs for the camera with an exaggerated smile or affected pose, there still remains a degree of sincerity, even of interiority that reminds us we are looking at one person rather than a cipher for many. That's the part I really love the most because I read that and I was like, yes. Yes. I know, right? He totally seemed to get it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, He totally gets it. And it's really uncanny. It's, and so just to explain more to the listeners, because they're not looking at the work, like you have all these images in this body of work that are um, homage, reference, whatever it is, jumping off point um, to other photographers. Again, as I said, whether it's Weston or Man Ray or Cindy Sherman or whoever, but there is a way in which you get that and then it just doesn't feel at all like it's just a exercise. It's like even when the pictures are really feel really particularly posed, which is a weird thing to say because they're self-portraits, they're all oh, right. posed. But <laughs> even the ones that feel, as he says, sort of like exaggerated smile or exaggerated pose, there's still something so personal there. So I guess the question is, was that intentional? Did you know that at the time that the pictures were gonna, going to 
feel so deeply authentic? Or is it that because you were creating a diary and, you know, learning about yourself, the authenticity is just there. It can't be sort of denied. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I would probably say, to answer that question, it might have been more of the latter, that the authenticity couldn't be denied. So much of what got me into self-portraiture was a desire to learn the medium and to learn how to use the different apparatuses in the medium. And I think a lot of self-portrait photographers start there. Like they, they want to learn how to use a particular camera. For me, it was the four by five. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're fumbling around with it. And so you think, I- I'm not going to ask anybody else. I'll just do it myself until I figure it out, right? Until I perfect yeah. my technique and then I'll then I'll circle around. But I immediately loved the relationship between the camera and me. Like I, I was perfectly content to never look outside of myself again once I started because I knew that I could in what he what uh, Zach wrote touches on this too it's kind of truly uncanny what he perceived you know I really wanted to reduce that intermediary in the photographic process and so I was really conscious of the kind of the scope of my references when I was photographing. So I was absolutely like on any given day, I was thinking Sherman or Weston or Brugere or whomever it was, probably who I had learned about the previous week in photo history. Every time Mm -hmm. I'd sit down (laughs) with the camera, I'd go, okay, let's, let's try some of this. Let's, let's try some of this. Let's try that. Oh, that was nice. Let me try Mm -hmm. that. And so that's so great. Thank you. Yeah, that was really intentional and deliberate. And initially, completely disappointing, because my images look nothing like the references, right? They didn't really, you know, you you didn't want to copy, but you wanted your reference, I think, to be as perfect as the as the final mm-hmm. image that you'd mm-hmm. seen. And mine, of course, weren't. They were messier. There was more slippage. There was always that very personal, intimate, private element because I was experimenting. The, the whole thing was an experiment. And so mm-hmm. that, I think, the, the evidence of that and the, as you said, the authenticity of that, I think, is what ultimately made them as a body of work really powerful because it shows this really sustained kind of what I've come to think of it in the past couple of years as a love affair. Like I loved photography. I felt, I mean, I loved every single conceivable element of it when I started to photograph. And so those years, those first, I'd say, at least the first 10 years that I made photographs, it was just a love affair. And at any time I could, I would get with my camera and do some work together. And it was just such a, an incredible creative outlet. One of the reasons being, especially with the self-portrait is in those pre-social media days, you didn't ever have to share anything if you didn't want to. So you had the freedom to do anything you wanted. Mm-hmm. And you still mm-hmm. do. But I think the perception is that you don't, right? Because there's this expectation that you share, you share, you share. But mm-hmm. then it was just my greatest expectation was, please let this exposure be good so that this negative is not hard mm-hmm. to work with. <laughs> and so I think what it has become was what existed in the work, but what I was not entirely conscious of as I was making it. I think that really sort of developed with the breadth of it over time. 
You know, one other thing that gets talked about a lot when folks are talking about your work, this work, is sort of your desire, um, your need to see black women not only represented in fine art photography, but sort of in the canon. And, you know, as opposed to just all these white guys photographing white women. But I wonder, is this something you actively thought about at the time? Yeah, that I actually did think about at the time. Not as, not so much for what you could say is the sort of political imperative of of balancing representation, but just out of the curiosity of it, I just wanted to see what my likeness or my approximate likeness looked like rendered in these different ways. And so because I didn't see it, I made it because I just wanted to see what it looked like. Right. Yeah. And so that was that I was conscious of. That makes perfect sense to me because sometimes when I've been reading about the work, sometimes folks have written about it in a way that makes it seem like it's just the way that people put it where I, I've been a little bit like this work feels so personal and so deeply emotional that it just doesn't feel loaded politically. No, it not feel, at all. Because, you know, it feels much more loaded with the way you just put it. I wanted to see myself. Yeah, um, 100%. And and that's that's really fascinating and 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 really beautiful and and moving to me. Um, oh, thank you. So yeah, you know, and I think that comes out of falling in love with something and really wanting to be loved back, right? And even though it was oh this, my god, yeah, not a, not a human, but this this medium that was just so remarkable, and you know, I couldn't get enough of it. So of course, I wanted to see myself as integral to that. And I wanted to see it respond to me. So yeah, that was... No, that makes perfect thinking. sense. And that that really clicks for me. And even the, that's really beautiful, the way you just put it, you know, when you fall in love with something, someone you wanted to love you back. I mean, I feel that way about many things. And, you know, right? one of yeah. one of the things, of course, about being an adult is also being reconciled, I'm thinking of myself as a guitar player when it doesn't necessarily love you back as much as you love <laughs> right. it. But, but, but we go on anyway. Um. Exactly. We're going to make it love us, right? Because our love is so strong. How could it, how could it ignore us? Right? Yeah. I have a question yeah. or just a comment. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It sounds like it's like the camera... Well, it's not the camera, but it's photography that you're kind of in love with. And then, but then the subject is you. Normally, when we look at photographs, it's like there's the photographer and there's the subject of the picture. And we kind of ignore photography. And it seems there's a difference going on here where the sub, it's not like I'm, you're not saying I'm the subject, you're saying I'm falling in love with photography in the process. And so you're kind of blurring the lines between all of those things, I guess. Oh, and I'm just, I was also just going to say, since I've been trying to photograph myself lately, and so Mm -hmm. I'm really 
admire the, like, just, it's astounding how you managed to do it and to control the framing and the lights so perfectly, but... Oh, I got a lot of blank film. Are you kidding me? <laughs> there was oh, a lot, really? of, <laughs> lot of uh, misses. Yeah, because, you know, you work with a mirror. I don't know. Do you ever work with a mirror? Or are you working with a mirror when you try your self-portraits? You try and line it up, but there's all... It- Inevitably, there's there's a lot of loss in that process, at least (laughs) (laughs) my experience. Well, I mean, the other thing is, that's really impressive to me is how open you are with yourself. I mean, Mm -hmm. it feels like, I guess this is kind of related to that first comment, but like, you love yourself, not not narcissism, but there's something really beautiful about being so open with yourself. And I think a lot of people who make pictures of themselves aren't that way. It's not like the norm. So there's yeah, something really no, powerful. Thank you for noticing that. I mean, you know, I do love myself. And one of the, it's interesting that you brought up narcissism because I was actually having, had this conversation with Janice Guy, who also made self-portraits when she was a student in the 70s. And both of us had the same experience. As soon as people would look at them, then they would just kind of look back at you and say, Oh, you must be really vain. And that was really <laughs> the only response. And, and it always astonished us because there's nothing vain about either of our <laughs> of our images. But I think the people's perception of self portraiture was really limited to that, probably especially for women, for the longest time that this was just, you know, yeah, you might toss off a couple in a bigger sort of body of work. But if you focused on it, there was really something wrong with you, like that you you really were just too obsessed with yourself. And that's routinely what you heard. And so for me, you know, and I'm sure for for most people who made self portraits, it's, it's hardly that at all. But I think it helps to not have overly formulated your self-perception through other people's eyes because then you become self-conscious. Like I I am the only person I know among all my friends, family, who you I can't take a bad picture as far as I'm concerned. I don't care how ridiculous I look, how, you know, I covet every single image that has ever been made of me or that I've ever made. And I really wish everyone else would do the same because it informs you on some level about yourself that you can't really anticipate, but we've so set ourselves up to have an expectation of what we look like, and really what we look like to others, that I think that makes many people's relationship to self portraiture a little bit more embattled. But for me, I just I think in many ways, I just got lucky, I just didn't start from that point. I was, I was 18 when I started making all the images that were in the book and obviously beyond. And so it was just all brand new. The only thing I'd ever used before that was an Instamatic. So it was just a clean slate. And I I feel really fortunate to have started from that point and to not have had preconceived ideas about how I'd be seen so that I could just have fun. So Carolyn, let's, let's, let's talk about, because then I do want to just sort of get to a place where we just were, which is just sort of talking about the process um, all together. But, you know, for the listeners, the reason I wanted to have you both on is because, you know, I'm looking at, so you both published um, your books, this, the, the books we're talking about today in 2023, and I think the past six months, but maybe a, a, anyway. We were actually um, on press at the same time. We're right at one right okay. after the other. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And Carolyn, 
your book, Untitled Men, is, I think there's 54 images in the book, and it's a study, more or less, of, I'll let you talk more about what it is, but of men, they're mostly portraits, some nudes, and some nude portraits, and some, you know, sort of uh, still life, um, sculptural pieces that still read like portraits, uh, just portraits of objects, and all tied to sort of masculinity or, or the idea of masculinity. You know, and what's, there's so many things about the two of you together that are interesting. I mean, you know, the obvious, Carla is making self-portraits. Carolyn, you're making portraits of other people and specifically another gender, you know, a real other. Carla's portraits, as we've discussed, are filled with a very beautiful, very moving, really um, admirable kind of self-love. And Carolyn, your pictures are coming or starting from a place of curiosity, but also a good deal of anger and questions about masculinity and men and male bodies. And you have to discover more tenderness and and empathy, whereas Carla's sort of starts out from that spot. So it's just so fascinating. So for me personally, I'll just tell you, you know, I'm spending time with these books sort of together, right? They're Mm -hmm. next to me and they're in front of me next to each other. And it's like, it is some sort of intellectual and emotional whiplash because (laughs) they, they are so different in every way, although there are also really interesting things that cross over. Carolyn, you also use a lot of reference and homage to other artists. And so, but I will, you know, Carolyn, your work starts out as more of a conceit and seems to become more of a self-discovery. And Carl, I think your work is sort of self-discovery and diary, as we've discussed sort of from the beginning. But anyway, so that's just to set things up. But Carolyn, tell folks about yourself. You don't have to, because you've been on before, you don't have to get too granular, but give us a little background and then let's talk about this book. And also going from Knit Club, which is your the book before this one that you came on the show to talk about. It's just phenomenal to me how you went from the language in Knit Club to the language in this book. I, I don't even... You know, it's it's so phenomenally, I don't know what the, you know, I don't know about polar opposite. You know, when I also had Knit Club in front of me and then I'm looking at Untitled Men, your new book, I was just like, holy cow, Carolyn, like what an emotional <laughs> roller <and coaster>. intellectual <laughs> roller coaster. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, just give us a little bit of background and then we can jump into talking about the book together. So... This, I mean, there are so many differences from (laughs) Carla's story, I guess. I mean, number one, I think I was about 50 when I started this work. So it was post Me Too, and the Me Too movement had triggered personal, it had made me angry and triggered personal memories of things that I had experienced in the past that made me even angrier and it was also the year that Roe versus Wade was overturned. So I had a lot of this anger built up, and I had proposed to 
kind of do a follow-up of my Knit Club project, which, as I spoke about in the in the previous podcast, um, is about a community of women who I had befriended in a small town in Mississippi. And in that work, I had found ways of not representing, but like visual exploration of this community in which I steered away from exposing their bodies and found other ways of visualizing like the mood and the feelings that to me were connected with them. And in this work, so I had proposed to turn the camera on men in this place. And so I went back and just started photographing some of the husbands of the women I had photographed and also some of the men who had helped me with the Knit Club project, but who I had rendered invisible in that one. And so I turned the camera on them and I didn't want to use the same language as Knit Club, but also this project, it it was such, the whole time it felt like such a rush because I had a deadline. I had to finish this in two years. So I'm kind of taking on this whole new subject matter and feeling you know, what am I going to do? And I started just taking portraits of people. And after several months of working on it, I kind of slowly came to the realization that I really wanted to look at the men's bodies, but I had been terrified to ask them if I can do that. And the first nude that I shot was actually of a man who offered to do it. I didn't have to ask I had invited these guys to lift, a, like to do a photo shoot where we were going to have them all straining to lift a log together. And this one guy made a joke in our joint text message that he was going to take off his clothes. And I quickly kind of pushed him that I, I would be interested in that. And so that was the first nude picture in the project. But it wasn't until many months even later than that that I actually started directly asking people to do that. I was interested in kind of interrogating, maybe we would call it white masculinity, and reversing the gaze, putting men in positions that we've seen women in over the centuries of art history and photographic history. So so it's very unlike Carla. And I was so, so conscious of the way women's bodies have been represented and the harm that I feel it had caused. I had gotten to a point where I ha- my relationship with photography was almost the opposite of, of Carla's. Like, I had started to just have problems with photography. And this was my way of almost like getting back at photography. Like, I'm going to reverse photography and do it this way. And so I would take pictures looking down on the men and scrutinizing their bodies and reversing the roles that we have normally seen most often. And also, I think another shift from the, the Knit Club project was to enable the viewer to kind of look directly at these bodies. I started getting rid of the backgrounds and the geography and the place. It wasn't about Mississippi this time. It was about the body. So I started using cloth or curtains as backgrounds and just kind of honing the view onto the body. Just to be clear for the listeners, this you said you had a deadline. It was because you had won the Henri Cartier-Bresson 
foundation yeah. award grant and and there's a deadline to produce work for that. Yes. I think the way the work came together if it works I think it's because I was kind of channeling a lot I was trying attempting to channel the anger that I had built up onto these men and over time as I worked with them and several of them I photographed over and over again and became more comfortable with them and became friends with them and collaborated with them, there was a certain amount of empathy that kind of seeped its way into the images. And so the tension between that bit of empathy, but still the anger kind of comes together in the images, I hope. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, it is for me um, as a viewer, but I can only speak for myself. I mean, one of the things that's just so fascinating to me about both these projects is they seem like projects of self-discovery. One sort of more obvious on the surface, Carla's project, but your project to me ultimately is a project of of self-discovery, right? In some ways, I'm not sure it has anything to do with these men. I don't even know if it has to do with men. It has to do (laughs) with how you feel about men. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also... My gender identification is kind of fluid. I think photography for me was a male, it was my male side, like, you know, and there's different ways of thinking about gender. But I mean, I agree that it's a self discovery. And I I agree with you when you say that it's not necessarily about men. I mean, maybe in some ways, these men are me. May I ask a question? Go ahead. Yeah. Was it this body of work that led you to start experimenting with self-portraiture? Or was that an independent, to have a direct relationship with this? I had started photographing myself near the end of COVID. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was also writing the proposal for this, this project about masculinity. So... Yeah, I was photographing myself at the same time I was writing about photographing men. And I I think one of the things that I wanted to say was that reaching the age of 50 was something. It has triggered some gender questions for me, I guess, because as I've aged, how I'm perceived by other people, I think, has shifted. And I find myself being seen by others in a way that's maybe more invisible or more quickly written off. And since I find myself being less scrutinized, and as I see myself, my face and my body change, I mean, my body feels more masculine now maybe than it did when I was younger. And so I do see some of the portraits I made of men's bodies. like, And it's also because the men I photographed are my age or older, so... It's partly about aging, and I see myself in some of that. Mm-hmm. And I think I had convinced myself that, I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion. I think one thing that drives me to photograph is something I'm confused about. And I I work through confusion using the camera, and I don't necessarily end up with an answer, but it's a process of working on something and considering it. And so I think my last couple of projects had been focusing my attention on women, and I felt a need for someone to 
turn the camera in the other direction. And so in a way, I was also feeling like I was fulfilling a need that I had, not necessarily a desire. It's not like I desired to go photograph men. I actually didn't. And when I when I actually got this grant and started shooting the men, I was a little bit horrified because I felt less pleasure from it than I did from photographing women. So those are maybe some semi-muddled comments <laughs> about the project. No, no, I, I, I don't. I think, you know, it sounds to me like this process of what it's, it's almost could be a trilogy, right? Like Knit Club, Untitled Men, and, and now this project of self-portraits. It sounds like a process of self-discovery, and that's not come to completion yet. Well, I don't know whether self, well, I do know that self-discovery never comes to completion, but it sounds like you're just in the process of this sort of whatever, wherever you're going to wind up, it sounds like, you know, you're still on the journey and it's really fascinating to, to talk to you while you're on this journey. And, you know, as, as someone who's really you know, values your work tremendously and what you're contributing to the photographic community and to all of us who who love photography, although you may be in battle with it at the moment. But I think this is, these are gifts that you're putting out and getting to see your, your journey, even if it's a struggle. So let me ask you something a little bit more concrete that you were talking to Britlin Tracy and PhotoEye. You said the images are constructed, posed, I did not want to insinuate any of this as natural. So the feeling of staging and performance was important to me. Can you just talk a little bit about, I'm always interested and I often talk to younger artists about the importance of parameters, of putting parameters into place so that you're not just dealing with a blank page. And obviously one of the parameters is that you were shooting men. That's a, that's a parameter or a guideline or whatever, however you want to put it. But can you just talk about that idea? Because I think it's really important to the to project. Yeah, I think I didn't want to photograph masculinity as it is. I wanted to mm-hmm. restage things so that I was almost erasing masculinity through my pictures. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. rather than photographing the way people perform it in their daily lives, I wanted to confront these people and strip away a lot of the kind of performance of masculinity, actually. And that's part of why I wanted to strip away the clothes, like just look at these bodies that were mostly in decline as they were aging, and strip away the power that I think I and a lot of our culture invests in in certain kinds of bodies and male bodies. And so I was just wondering, what is it about these bodies that has encouraged our society to endow them with so much power? And thinking that by just looking straight at the body and all of its parts, and maybe some fragile parts, what does that do to our perception of male power? And I wanted to, I just back to the beginning point, like, I wanted to be in control of how things were depicted. And 
thinking about masculinity as something that's not necessarily natural, but something we've constructed and constructed partly by visual representations that make the men seem a certain way and performances in life that make them seem a certain way. Let me ask you both about reference, because I wonder, you know, is it fun to do this? Is it important to do it, to show that you know your art history, your photographic history? Or is it, (laughs) I know that's not why, um, but, or is it, what I suspect is that A, it's fun, and B, because it does help with the blank page thing. But you both have a lot of references in your work. So we talked, Carl, a bit about that with your work. But Carolyn, you know, you have really sort of direct references to Moybridge, to Barack. Can you guys just talk about why that you both do that and, and how it either helps or is it just fun, whatever, whatever the motivation is. Because I, again, I just think for listeners, this this is valuable process talk. Who goes first? Go ahead, Carolyn. Yeah, yeah go, ahead, you, Carolyn. go ahead, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Moybridge and Balak were two historical photographers who definitely influenced. I mean, I think looking at their work helped me plan out some of my shoots. And that was a way to move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It just helped me begin, you know. So with Moybridge, that was one of the first ones that I was considering. And I had looked at a lot of his motion sequences and seen how, I mean, this kind of relates to your question about what's natural too. Like I saw Moybridge, there's one specific sequence he has of two women, nude women, taking vases of water and pouring them on each other. And then he has pictures mm-hmm. <laughs> of nude men doing things he thought as like natural male qualities. So he would give them swords and they would sword fight with each other. And mm-hmm. he was making the men and women, these performances look natural. I mean, and because he was someone who was considered to be scientific, like his images were so scientific, they showed how motion happens in the body. And scientifically, he's also showing what's feminine and masculine, and as though that's also a science. And so I really wanted to try and reverse that in some way. And so I kind of thought of different motion sequences that might invert his approach to gender. And then with Balok, that was near the end of my shooting for the project. And his images were more... I had a complicated view with his Storyville project, which I guess, Carla, you must know that well from having lived in New Orleans. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) He took these beautiful portraits in the 19th century of prostitutes in New Orleans or sex workers. And I printed out a bunch of them that I found on the internet and carried them around with me to show the men and tell them, okay, I want to try and create images like this, but using men. And it made it very clear to the people who I was trying to convince. It just kind of helped me explain what I wanted to do, um, put the mm-hmm. men in positions that women were have been depicted in. So those are two influences that helped me move forward. So important. I mean, yeah. yeah. 
And Carla, do you relate to that idea of just sort of like helping you move forward? Well, it's, you know, I think we're at such different points in our making lives that we're when I was making most of the those initial pictures, it was just a response to the things that I liked. Like I, I just wanted to engage with <laughs> right. other images Your that exuberance. I liked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so it was, <laughs> yeah. and so it was partly for me, you know, the excitement of oh, can I make one of those? Can I can I make something that looks like right. that? That's can I? So, <laughs> right. yeah. um, and it yeah, the the sort of consciousness of it certainly didn't happen until later. Maybe gr- grad school was the first time that I was really more cognizant of which photographers I was referencing or which particular images I was referencing. And that was entirely as a way to both engage in a dialogue just, you know, in order to talk about one kind of image or in order to make sure that my images had a point of reference, I was responding in my own way to certain historical images. I wanted them to have that kind of framework in which you could say, well, if you're looking at this, then look at this and then talk about them together. But it was also a little bit of, by that time, a little bit of, well, if this particular way of seeing or way of representing you have already elevated and given a value, then if I do it, then you have to start me at that level too. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't, that became conscious, but it wasn't the overarching. The Mm -hmm. overarching thing was just to, you know, to respond to the things that I I was personally responding to in order to have a nonverbal conversation with, again, that history of photography, that, you know, sort of world of images. I'm curious, Carla, how did your image making change? I mean, you mentioned 2000 and something, you actually stopped making pictures. Like, were you making those same kinds of images until you stopped? Or like, what's your relationship with photography now? Have you started making work again? Do you still love photography the same way you did when you started? I do still love it the same way. We're older now, so we have a different <laughs> kind of more settled relationship. You know, I, ne- I never stopped loving it. I think that like any relationship, you you have good and bad periods. So when I stopped, it wasn't because I didn't love photography. I just didn't. It's just more trouble than it was worth. And in some ways, I wasn't really all that engaged with exhibitions or putting it out there. So it just after a while, it just it seems like a waste of time and resources. And but I did remain I wasn't making the same kind of images, except that I was really still committed to the idea of thinking about the self and how you represent the self through images. And so I did toward the end, it was a couple of different projects I did. And I'll say about the self and representation. And some of my last projects, there was a, a collaborative project I did with the artist Deirdre Visser when I was living in California called Naming Race in the Landscape, where we went and photographed place names across the U.S. that were specific to race, because I was really interested in the way in which we attached meaning to things that can't hold the meaning that we we attach to them. It's like places that are mm. named, that have these sort of mm. like Squaw Valley. Like we can't, the thing itself can't really hold the meaning that those those words do. And so I was really interested in how the landscape itself could be configured to sort of challenge that relationship between meaning and 
appearance or what something looked like. And then I also did a, a project uh, where I it was entitled Other People's Clothes, in which I was really interested in the way in which our self-presentation through dressing identifies us. And so I asked all the people I know if I could borrow their clothes. And then I tried to sort of respond to what I knew about them through the construction of their outfits, essentially, through the wearing of their garments. I tried to sort of transform myself through their clothes. So they were related, but not visually the same at that point. But yeah, definitely, I've never stopped loving photography. And I think what ultimately happened is I just started collecting it after I stopped making it. I just, and having a store gives you free license to buy all the, all the things you claim um, are for the store. But I think I ended, I've certainly ended up with more photographs in my collection now than I ever sold. But that also helped me, <laughs> it helped me really kind of hone my interests in collecting. And so I ended up focusing on just sort of three, three subject areas. I collect uh, black pinups, black burlesque dancers, and black circus and sideshow performers of the 19th and 20th century. So if so oh, I feel a book coming. I know, right? <laughs> oh, believe me, I've, already, I've already talked to Paul about it. But, um, <laughs> you yeah, know, that's a no-brainer. Right? I mean, oh, my gosh, there's so much good stuff. And the thing about it oh, is, sure there is, you know, now that I'm working with a gallery, I'm working with higher pictures, and, you know, there have been conversations about, well, are you going to start making new images? I had no intention of when I embarked upon the book project with Paul, but now there feels like a different kind of imperative because now I've kind of put myself in it. So I have, in a sense, more of a responsibility to grow this or to sort of make more connections between my past work and now my archival work and my writing. And so... I think I am, I, but changes every other day. Most, most <laughs> days it's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to make new things. And I think you don't even have a camera anymore. What are you thinking? Like, what, what are you doing? So, but it's clearly as, as anyone could attest, it's clearly all so connected ultimately that if you had to, you could say, oh, well, it's all been one, one whole creative project this whole time, but it's certainly taken very different configurations depending on what I was doing. But yeah, so I'm struggling with it mostly because I really never thought about photographing again before this past year. Well, I can relate to the, I'll just chime in and say, you know, I, uh, I started making pictures in high school, spent a lot of my time in the dark room in, in high school, mm -hmm. and then was making a lot of uh, photographs at college I went to to purchase but then got really involved in film and, uh, and then uh, started making films and mm -hmm. I was a filmmaker and worked in that industry for a long time and then when I got burnt out in that that space I I fell into just editing friends work I I, I built a dark in my place and started taking pictures again and this was you know I was probably you know in my late 30s and yada, 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 I wound up opening a gallery when I was, you know, in my early 40s or whenever it was. So, uh -huh. you know, when I look back on my life, it's all photography. Right. It's just either still photography, moving pictures, making it, oh, editing exactly. it, yeah. championing it, talking about it. But, I mean, you yeah. know, it's, it's, yeah. Well, and you know, <laughs> as, a, as a creative, I don't know if you've had this experience, but every single person I ever 
have known, it seems, who was a photographer, you know, it, there, it ebbs and flows. And when it ebbs, you think, oh, I'm not a photographer anymore. You feel like you need to make this declaration. And, you know, we all did it. And then now when I hear young people right. do it, I just think, uh-huh, yep, you're going through the process. But right. guess what? You're right. a photographer. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> right. yeah. we really have, we just, we all, none of, I don't know anybody who just starts from the beginning and thinks, oh, no, it's just going to, it's just going to unfold the way it unfolds. And I'm going to be content at whatever point I find myself. But yes, I have, I mean, I have a romantic idea about photography, I think, but I absolutely think it's, it's one of those things that either you are all in and it, it, you're never going to be rid of it, or you weren't, you didn't have any particular relationship to it in the first place. Mm-hmm. But you don't, you don't let it go. That's why even it seems to me if I not to be presumptuous, but Caroline is grappling with it because she cares about it. Because it matters still. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's you like, love a, it, it no, is, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is like a long term relationship. And last weekend, I actually had a, I took a workshop in wet plate collodion making tin, oh, tin types so for just fun. two days. Wow. And How I, fun. yeah. And while I was there, I heard myself say, there's just two other students, and I heard myself say, yeah, we're all here because we love photography. See? And I just, yeah, I do love photography. Um, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't waste your time if you didn't. That's just it. It's like yeah. you would, you would just think, ah, oh, that was disgusting. Like I, I don't want anything to do with it. But, and there are disgusting parts of it. Like I think it sounds like you and I are roughly the same age. I think I might be a little older, but I know so much of what you're talking about in your work and the way in which you respond to this this history of representation of women of the particular relationship that photography has to this kind of concept of the hunt and capturing its subjects and all this sort of ugliness that has been really (laughs) built into the way that we think Mm -hmm. about and talk about the medium I think it really sort of started in our era, right? I don't think many of those conversations happened much before the 70s. I haven't seen mm-hmm. any documentation of it, if if it was. And so that's the time we really started, people were, were really starting to question, like, huh, is that, mm, that's not so great, you know? And so mm-hmm. I, I completely get that. And I think that's that's part of how you love it, right? Is that you, you have to come to terms with the uh, problematic parts and as a maker, you take on, as you certainly described with Untitled Men, you take on the responsibility of setting it right, of setting it straight, or at least addressing what you see to be the problematic parts of it, because because you want to love it and you want to be able to continue with it, but you can't just sit silent. Yeah, and you want to turn it into something that you believe in. Like, exactly. I wanted to see if I can bend it to do this other thing to follow another rule and you have to keep I think bending photography forward is you know it's in a constant process of being pushed which I think is good yes so that's why maybe why you want to go back because people want to see how (laughs) you're going to push it next I think but then you have all this pressure now (laughs) I know I know now there's just a little pressure but I will say like I think that that is so true. Like one of the things that I think has made my work so much better in this moment than it may have been had it been sort of out and circulating prior to this is the whole selfie kind of revolution. I think this, the way in which, I mean, and it's, and photography is so perfect for that, right? The popular applications of the medium really drive a lot of 
I think, are artistic or more academic questions about the medium. But I absolutely love the way in which selfies have become this sort of normalized, ubiquitous thing when they're doing physically, they're doing nothing different than we always could. You just extend your arm, press the button and you get a (laughs) self-portrait. But this whole concept of it as a means of self-presentation, and of course, now with the means to self-publish that self-presentation, I think has done such a favor to self-portraitists because just like Janice and I and many others got those um, very shallow comments about narcissism. Well, the selfie culture is about narcissism. So I think we can safely place that part of the conversation there and thus leave more serious efforts with self-portraiture to finally, I think, a more interesting conversation. But I think it really required that really popular explosion of the idea of picturing yourself and then showing people to expand the dialogue that could happen. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that so many, it seems like older, particularly women artists, there have been books, some posthumous coming out. TBW has another one, and I apologize, I can't think of the photographer's name. Sally Stein is, I think, writing about her work, but they're self-portraits from the 70s. And since my book came out, I can't tell you how many people are like, you know, I made some self-portraits back in the day. Maybe I should, maybe I should revisit that. And I'm like, absolutely, because now I think the dialogue <laughs> has become enriched. People have a different way of thinking about them than just dismissing them. So yeah, I mean, self-representation is the way to go now. Like the era of representing others, which was dominant in this certain time period, is. has really been called into question. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. and it's been called into question. I mean, Black Lives Matter in this country, I think it was one thing that helped really put it over the edge in that direction. But I think that's an important evolution that's happened. Absolutely. I think so, too. And so is is Kim Kardashian sort of a little idol of mine? (laughs) (laughs) Like that book, a book entitled Selfish. Oh, my God, that's so brilliant. <laughs> like I could, could not love that more. So n- no, do I love Kim Kardashian? No. But do I love her book project Selfish? Absolutely. Like, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, it really just it just makes the conversation deeper and richer and, and more accessible. I think that's the other part that's really important. It makes it more accessible. It's less academic now because everyone thinks and talks about it. They just enter at different points. So yeah, I mm-hmm. think you're right. I think it's it's a profound shift. It's a really important shift. And the internet, of course, has facilitated it as well, the ability to self, self-publish, to self-present. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a counterpoint, I just, one of the things that I treasure about photography is when I'm working with other people, mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed relating to people um, and the relationships that I have with people that I wouldn't have otherwise when I'm photographing them. And so for me, I continue to be conflicted (laughs) in that way, because I really believe there's there can be like more authenticity in self representation and more, maybe it's more egalitarian like more empowering Mm -hmm. for the subject. But I also feel there's something about connecting with other people and the crossover that happens 
when you're working with another person. And you said it yourself when you were speaking earlier, you refer to it as sometimes a collaboration. Like I think that was not a part of that has not traditionally or historically been the way in which that relationship has been conceived. We've always liked this model of the master photographer and then the subject who the photographer kind of interprets. But it isn't that way. There is probably never actually been that way. We've just bought into that myth. And so I think just simply the fact that you as someone who photographs other people and photographs them in really sort of complicated positions, you know, vis-a-vis their gender, their masculinity, whatever that is, I think the fact that you speak about them in terms of the collaboration of it, the back and forth and all the things that have to go into it. I mean, photographing other people is never going to go away. We're all so curious about one another. And so I think what you're doing is exactly what has to be done is, you know, continuing to interrogate how to do it and how to, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of how to make those relationships translate to the photographic image. I am way too much of an introvert to photograph anybody else. I mean, I I forced my family back in the day, but I'm always in awe of someone who can elicit anything from another subject because I just, I can't do it (laughs) in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Not at all. It's hard. It's hard. That's, you know, I think yeah. that's, that's a very hard way to approach photography. I, I I would not have if I had, if I had been told no self portraits, that would have been it. I would have said, oh, okay, <laughs> never, never mind. <laughs> so yeah, but that's, it's important. It's important for photographers to look at that relationship and let it transform. Well put. Yeah, very well put. I always find it fascinating, you know, who is comfortable photographing other people and mm-hmm. who is not because mm-hmm. there's so many you know famous examples of very shy people who sort of really came into themselves and found a certain ease i think when... belloc is one of them i think from the accounts i think belloc was not he was not socially at ease he was kind of a total outsider but i think he found his equilibrium with these women yeah for some people also mm. of course as we know the camera gives them a certain Comfort, you know, and obviously we could go down this rabbit hole of comfort power, where do these things Mm. cross over, but we'll we'll have to save that for another time. I got to wrap up, but thank you both so much for doing this, uh, you know, being so generous with your time and your thoughts and your hearts and really uh, meaningful to me. And, and I'm, I'm really appreciative to, to both of you. So, so thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been so fun. And my dogs didn't even act up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to both of you. Anyway, California and Louisiana, and New York. upstate New York, where, yep. yeah. All places are religious, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. All, all fine places. All very um, fine places. All well, right. Thanks, thank you Thanks again. to both thank of you. you. It's been a pleasure. You guys take care. Okay. You yep, too. You too. Right. Bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.